0: back as Randy Newman leads us in here we are officially kicking off our Pixar series rewatch, our deep dive and the lead up to Toy Story 4 we've teased it we talked about it in our Disney animated top 5 episode and now it's finally here to start and kick off I guess you're April this is no April fool since you'll be listening to this on I think the third hopefully uh, this is Mike Mike and Oscar I'm your co-host Mike one this is co-host also Mike also Mike here this is comfort food this is uh... yeah our wheelhouse on the one
1: hand because it's oscar everything mm-hmm. and it's oscar worthy in many more ways than what it was nominated for but it was nominated for three oscars winning a special achievement oscar which is rarely given out and it, it it's it's something that started a humongous series that is now going to turn into a humongous series from us at mmo
0: yeah so it's pretty... kind of crazy that like how the, the origins of this company started and how the origins of this it also proves that like the worst body at adapting to change in the world, I think, might be the Academy. Because yeah. <laughs> they had no idea what to do with this movie. Uh, here's a special Oscar. Special achievement. <laughs> yeah. And win nothing else. So we're going to get into all that in the history of it, but like we said, this is the kickoff to our big Pixar rewatch deep dive. We're going leading into Toy Story 4, which will be coming out this summer and no doubt will make a bajillion dollars and will win some Academy Awards because this is going to be some, what, 24 years after the original one hit theaters now, uh, that this one's finally coming out. These episodes are going to be a little different than the usual movie review or an Oscar sprint profile. They're going to be structured the same generally in the sense that they're going to be a non-spoiler section and a spoiler section. Why we need a non-spoiler section for something like Toy Story 1, I'm not sure, but we're going to have a non-spoiler section, so if you've not seen Toy Story, uh, welcome to the world, young child. But also, don't worry, we're not going to spoil it here. We're going to have the spoiler warning music. I'm hoping to get like a more Disney-ified music for this series. Mm -hmm. I haven't done it yet. That also might be an empty promise. We'll see how much, uh, if I can get to that, but if I can get to that, we'll have different music. We'll have the spoiler warning music, and the second half will be all spoiler spoilers, but uh, there is going to be different little twists and unique flavor to all of these episodes. Mike's going to go over the 22 principles of, of Pixar screenwriting that's become like this holy gospel amongst the screenwriting nerds. Uh, he's going to have one of those every episode. Here, here. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to go th- walk you through in, in this episode starting off, and hopefully for everyone coming out, the history of the Pixar company, kind of the background, how they were, where they were when this got started, how they made this movie in H1 coming out. Was it Halt and Catch Fire, Mike? Uh, Tell me it was uh, actually. Yes, it was. I knew it. <laughs> We're going to have different l- little twists that we hope differentiate this series from what you're used to with the Oscar sprint profiles and the movie event reviews from us, but they are going to be started in the same way that we want to familiarize you with the background and what went on and into every one of these films. So with that, we are going to start with a cast and crew breakdown that Mike's going to give us.
1: Yes, co-written and directed by John Lasseter. He'd go on to uh, direct and, and co-write again. A Bug's Life, Toy Story 2, Cars, and Cars 2. He won a Special Achievement Oscar for this film in 1996 at those Academy Awards. Yeah. Of course, much has been made in recent years with the Time's Up movement about Lassiter's mistakes, and he definitely made some I I do believe he's been rehired since. He
0: has. He's the head of. I just read it. He's the head of some animation company now. They just got hired actually in 2019. We've covered uh, his problems
1: in the past on our show, and Hollywood Hot Take episodes, and in Breaking News episodes. And this is not the time or place here. You know, everybody has good and bad to him, but he definitely did some things that were wrong. But I'll move on for the moment. More writing credits go out. Uh, for Toy Story here, and listen to these names, Michael. Mm. Pete Docter, who would go on to direct Monsters, Inc., and Inside Out... We have Andrew Stanton, who'd go on to write direct Finding Nemo, Finding Dory Wally. Not bad. We have Joe Rampt, who comes over from Disney Animation Studios. He's one of the first screenplay doctors on this movie. He had writing credits for The Brave Little Toaster. Oliver and Company of The Rescue is down under. Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King. Decent work if you can get it. <laughs> then we have Alex Sokolow uh, and Joe Cohen with an H. Yeah, not, not that one. Not the, the Cohen brothers <laughs> with no H, but he would go on to write cheaper by the dozen evan almighty a bunch of well-known kids movies also money talks was in there by the way all right for, for those guys, uh, but uh, the biggest name, of course, is Joss Whedon. Why do I
0: have no memory of this?
1: I Me neither. Right? I, I learned this going yeah, through this cast crew. Joss Whedon had a draft of Toy Story, and he'd go on to, of course, create, write, and direct Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Firefly Serenity, the Avengers 1 and 2 subtitle Ultron, and, of course, the Cabin in the Woods. So a, a guy that would just become one of the pillars in cinematic universe building. Start gets his start with Pixar.
0: Yeah, I got a little more about him uh, and where he was in his career coming up in the specs, too. I don't know how he got his claws into Disney and vice versa, but... Uh, he does you know, have claws. They, they have a pension. He? Well, yeah, that. He is part Raven, and also Disney has a pension for spotting talent, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the cast of Toy Story is spectacular. I'm just going to go through this quickly. We have Tim Allen from Home Improvement and the Santa Claus. We have legendary comedian Don friggin' Rickles in this movie. How
0: are they going to do that now? I I was thinking about that. Do you think he... I don't know if... I have nothing... I didn't read anything about if he got his voice part in for Toy Story 4 because these do take years to develop, but... I don't know. Maybe they'll have it like Chef. Hello
1: there, children! (laughs) I don't know. I just hope he's involved somehow. Yeah, me too. Uh, We have Ernest P. Worrell himself. Jim Varney (laughs) is the voice of Slinky the Dog. We have the Princess Bride and My Dinner with Andre's Wallace Mm Sean, the best list in the business.
0: Inconceivable.
1: Ghostbusters and Pretty in Pink's Annie Potts. She's very funny in Ghostbusters. She's Bo Peep. John Ratzenberg from Cheers. Is there a more recognizable voice there? Perfectly
0: casted. Roseanne and Ladybirds. Laurie Metcalf. Another thing I didn't know until I had to prepare Me this. You
1: neither. Yeah. It's wonderful. And, of course, Full Metal Jacket drill sergeant extraordinaire, actual drill sergeant, gets hired by Kubrick to play in Full Metal Jack- Jacket, plays one of the army men here, R. Lee Ernie. Things went a little Ernie. different
0: for him in this movie than they did in Full Metal Jacket. Correct.
1: Uh, the late, great R. Lee Ernie there. And finally, we have some guy named
0: Tom Hanks. Not familiar. Uh, Woody the cowboy. Talk about distinctive voices, too. My God. Not only are they, like, all A-list, but, like... If you were in an echo chamber or a vacuum out in space and you only had. The voice of Ernest. <laughs> like, you would know it's the voice of Ernest. Immediately. Right? <laughs> which I love. And, and
1: you know what? That's a little uh, aggressive in terms of, all right, we know these well-known voices, right? And Arrogant
0: is the word you're looking for. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh,
1: but they pull it off. Of no, course no they question. do, yeah.
0: Disney Disney is not one for uh, playing coy, let's say. I think say. they knew it was going to be a hit for a thousand years. Disney certainly may have had that confidence. I don't even know that the actual industry of Pixar did, but let's talk mm-hmm. about that right now. Let's talk about the history of pixar how they got to this point so production officially got underway on the creation of toy story in january of 1993 it was released for the holiday season in november of 1995 but getting to the point of producing this in 93 is a bit of a roller coaster pixar originated basically as a computer company who did graphics works as an ancillary project was it out of a garage it was out of a what has to be a fake technology school in New York, <laughs> the N- NYIT, the New York right. Institute of Technology. Uh, the early days of Pixar up to and through their having gone from an idea generated at NYIT, New York Institute of, Which of Technology... Which is a garage. <laughs> ...to becoming an arm of Lucasfilms as assorted When people came and left the group as it had the ultimate goal of figuring out how to make the world's first ever film comprised entirely of computer graphics. That was kind of the idea, even in the late 70s, when this whole thing was just a concept amongst students and yeah. teachers. Lassiter,
1: Lassiter pitched the Brave Little Toaster as a computer-generated film and was immediately
0: fired by Disney. Yeah, and probably for the best at that point because <laughs> a computer-animated Brave Little Toaster film in the 80s would have been a disaster. Been a disaster. <laughs> uh, that's a big a big hallmark about Pixar, too, is that they literally they were formed and they were all like 42 people looking at each other like, what the hell are we doing? <laughs> they had to make the tech along the way, which is kind of fascinating. Yes. On their way, and still we're talking about when they were in Lucas, part of the Lucasfilm Enterprises, on their way, they ended up working on, and with a litany of projects and personalities all the way from Star Trek to The Wrath of Khan to the Chuck E. Cheese Company. Mm. Uh, the New Wave Graphics Company would remain a part of Lucasfilm until George Lucas himself had to sell various assets after and as part of being taken for a ride in his infamous 1983 divorce. So, thus, Pixar, what they... They were kind of at the time just the graphics arm of Lucasfilm and LucasArts. Mm-hmm. They were purchased by Steve Jobs for what at the time might have seemed like a steep price of $10 million because they weren't really anything yet. They were just involved with a couple projects and had some high-level brands on, on the level with them. And this is after
1: Jobs is fired from Apple and he's in this transition period.
0: Nice to have $10 million laying around that you can dispose Not of. the uh, too throw shabby. something in 1986. But yeah, so Jobs purchases it $10 million in 1986 and the company would remain a hardware firm focused company that happened to do great graphics work on the side. Mm-hmm and it struggled. It was a money loser for Jobs year after year, and there were reports that he was even considering selling the brand off even to main competitor Microsoft. That could have been a totally different history. Wow. Uh, So dire were the times that the decision was made to change course completely as Jobs would sell off the hardware side of the Pixar business completely and turn the brand solely into a computer graphics animation department on the back of what employee John Lasseter had been able to do with the technology for established brands in the commercial world. Now, two things went into this decision. One, Mm -hmm. the animation department that Lasseter ran was really one of the only profitable arms of the Pixar group for Jobs at that point. Lasseter had gotten in with certain high-level brands such as Listerine and he did commercial work for the T2 movie with James Cameron and promotional so he was making money there. And two, the other thing that indicated to Jobs that maybe it was wise to turn Pixar solely into a computer animation company is this giant influx of cash from Disney. (laughs) It was around the same time in 1991, Disney reached an agreement on a three-picture deal with Pixar to the two of $26 million total which sounds great until you realize it wouldn't be until two years later that work would even start on Toy Story and even during development it was so touch and go that Jobs himself at one point would have to step in to keep Pixar alive as Disney halted everything until they were met with a version of Woody the protagonist that was more palatable to their brand.
1: So Disney's changing their way of doing things. Tim Burton was one of the very first uh, auteurs that they were willing not, actually- not one of he. That was the first time. The first time they allowed a movie to be made outside of their house at Disney. And they wanted Lasseter back for a long while. Mm-hmm. And they finally lured him back after The Precedent was set with Tim Burton. So it was fascinating to to, to read about the fact that Disney and they have tyrants in charge of their
0: workplace. Yeah, there. don't be fooled by the mouse ears.
1: Yeah, and they, they self-proclaimed tyrants. And they basically had to change their way of doing things.
0: It's really fascinating if you put yourself in like John the shoes at that point where he was so... Basically laughed out of the company, right? Right. And then not even a decade passes, half a decade passes, and he's like being wooed back with open arms because I guess, at least in the minds of Disney and Apple at the time, he is literally the only guy in the world capable of doing this, or at least that note has his finger on the pulse of what pop culture wants in terms of computer graphics at the time. How every
1: protagonist in one of his movies is not someone banished from a really cool place <laughs> right, only to come point. back to that really cool place and then have more fun is
0: just a just a test of willpower. Uh, afterwards, after it was flushed out, and the Pixar did present a vision of Woody that Disney was amenable to and they did work out other kinks uh, i.e toy story wasn't going to be a musical which disney would have really wanted in the inception apparently and pixar squashed that almost right away you know the history from there toy story was eventually promised to the world during holiday season for 1995 which even up to according to a fa- the fandom wiki article that i read uh, fandom.com mm-hmm. even up to a point in 1994 prior to Disney saying this would be a hard due date of 1995, holiday sure. season 95 for Toy Story, Jobs was still considering selling the company because it wasn't doing anything. They yeah. were ju- they were doing work on this movie that didn't have a, a drop date. They didn't know if it was actually ever going to come, come forward. No one had heard about it and you did, obviously didn't have the internet like you do today that there weren't these random people checking up on it and creating hashtags.
1: Jobs was very soured by the deal and the negotiations he had with Disney. They needed it. They needed the money, the influx, of money just yeah. to stay afloat, right. and Jobs was basically like uh, Peter Griffin in that uh, episode where Peter gets his own country. Well, <laughs> oh, can I have this pen? No, that's our pen. But basically, uh, Jobs didn't get anything he wanted. Disney owned all the rights. Jobs wanted the rights or wanted the, the rights to revert to him. Now He got nothing, so he was going in kind of soured by it, and it, to this, you know, well, to, to recent years, he would always talk about how he was so, still angry at that
0: deal. It can't be easy, right? Like, you think about the corporate takeovers, the conglomerate, the, the Time Warner, the, the Xfinity, NBC deals, GE deals, I should say. It can't be easy for two, like, people that everything has gone right for in business. Two Woody's. <laughs> <laughs> to, to come to an agreement like that. And meet Buzz Lightyear. And have to listen to each other. Right, right yeah. There might be subtext <laughs> somewhere along the way. Uh, Mike, you have some production nuggets here about how this story finally got off the ground.
1: So, yes, Woody begins as this main villain in the first treatment of the script. I was bewildered to see this. They have two protagonists. They have Tinny, who is from the short film that... Uh, this
0: was just Lasseter thumbing his nose at Disney, right? Right.
1: The, the, <laughs> Lasseter wins a Oscar. For the short film nineteen eighty six, yes. Nineteen eighty-six, and that essentially gets him back with Disney to a certain degree with this Pixar deal. This is it the animated
0: short Oscar, I
1: believe. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so he's going on the coattails of that with the same protagonist, this little tin man guy named Tinny, and this ventriloquist dummy, I think was named Dummy, and Woody, this cowboy guy, is the villain. Sounds horrifying. It's it is horrifying. <laughs> uh Disney reads that script and with their story machine they say absolutely not we want an odd couple buddy comedy that's what this should be go write it again so tinny then becomes a military action figure and then a spaceman named lunar larry a space man named morph man named tempest before they eventually land on the name Buzz Lightyear in the upteenth draft of the script, naming him in part for the astronaut Buzz Aldrin. Mm -hmm. Dummy now was eventually named Woody because he was a wooden ventriloquist dummy, and one of the people there in the writer's room is like let's make him a cowboy and lassiter really likes the contrast between western and sci-fi and so that's that...
0: how we got the movie cowboys and aliens in 2006 we definitely get that and
1: i think there's also a john carter movie <laughs> yes, that shows yes. how much pixar is fascinated with cowboys and aliens but michael we have the western and the sci-fi And we have the change of the cowboy villain to now the cowboy uh, main character and the sci-fi guy being his primary foil. So you have this buddy comedy that works on multiple levels. All of the early writers, they were devotees of Robert McKee, who wrote, of course, the most famous book on screenwriting called Story, nice and simple. He is a follower of Aristotle's
0: Poetics. Imagine having the balls to write a screenwriting book and just title it Story. He thinks big picture, Mr. Robert McKee, but he also can break it down and whittle yeah. it down
1: and watch the movie adaptation if you want a parody of Robert McKee. But essentially, he says that the most compelling characters result from making choices in reaction to their problems. It seems simple, but it is much easier said than done. But this was kind of the writing principle of this script or what they where they wanted to get it. So all those other accomplished writers come on board throughout this you know six-month, eight-month period and draft by draft, this movie, Toy Story, comes together with the latest edition, and I thought this was fascinating, them just saying, all right, we have to have Buzz Lightyear going to a, a, a place with a bunch of squeaky toy aliens, and that was like one of the last little payoffs that they had, it was just brilliant.
0: Yeah, and, it, and that's one of the most memorable, I mean, do we get the Minions franchise without those aliens? No way, no, right? No. The, the little green, little yellow, yeah. little...
1: Is that a primary color?
0: Yes. It's a I light have no idea. Spring. I literally my worst grade in school was art. I'm very <laughs> bad at that. Are you colorblind and you I'm don't know? Ju- no, I'm just a left-handed.
1: Yeah. So it's a good thing we're on radio. But Mike, you have some
0: specs. Yeah, I want to give a shout-out to just a couple of things for me. I already mentioned uh, fandom Disney.fandom.com where I got a lot of this information. Also a, an article written on Mission.org uh, from 2018. Got a lot of information out there. There was a Hollywood Reporter article yes. about Toy Story. So a couple different sources. Just wanted to give a shout-out where we got kind of did our research but it's all over the the internet and it's really not confined to one space so if we do have something and forgot to credit it that's that's our bad but there is a lot of shared knowledge in this as well uh toy story for specs mike told you john Lasseter was the was the director of this it was written by Lasseter, pete doctor andrew stanton and joe Rampt all get original story by credits joss whedon stanton joel cohen not that one and alex Sokolo <laughs> all get screenplay by credits it's a bit lost in history that whedon was basically brought in as the cleaner to the script and fine-tuned it so the film focused more on the um, uh, b- b- story rather than the children who play with them. Because apparently in an early inception in this script, the focus was supposed to be on the kids and not the toys.
1: Which is a rough choice because they're least capable of animating the children. I that was,
0: they, That's the point I wanted to focus on. But like Andy and the mother and the baby, those are the least realistic looking figures. We just criticized
1: Hellboy, right? For not... Yeah. Having the most interesting characters in your story be the pr- protagonists and the focal characters. If they did this with Andy and the mother, they, they're the least interesting characters. Of course, that the, they should do. And it you know, totally lacks the
0: toys. It lacks the whimsy. I mean, the, this this pinnacle of movie making right. is basically built on the childlike wonder of all of us having this dream at some point. Yeah. Like, dude, if I open my door quick enough, am I going to catch them? <laughs> or these hallucinations. Whatever, uh, I had a rough childhood. Uh, film had its debut on November 19th, <laughs> 1995 at the El Capitan Theater in LA. It went wide in the US a couple days later on the 22nd of November in 95. Uh, it was actually a movie that was anywhere from about three years to ten years in the making. It sure. just went over the Pixar history there, depending on which aspect of development you're focusing on. It would be Pixar Animation Studios' first feature-length film and Disney's like we said, only second animated film ever working alongside another production company rather than handling the film in-house themselves completely. The first, of course, like we mentioned, being Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas back in 1991, which, as director John Lasseter was quoted as saying during the Toy Story 20th anniversary panel, was more responsible for Toy Story getting off the ground than people realized. Lasseter's quote there, quote, because of Nightmare Before Christmas, Toy Story happens." Uh, Randy Newman, obviously, does the music. Historically relevant, and we know. Uh, thank you. All right. <laughs> Robert Gordon and Lee Unkrich handled the editing in what amazingly was their first work on a feature film, never mind an all-CGI one. It runs for an incredibly efficient 81 minutes. Oh, my
1: God, is it efficient? And
0: cost $30 million in terms of production budget, which was funded at various points by each of Disney, Pixar, and even Steve Jobs himself to sure. keep alive, like I mentioned. It ended up doing okay for itself financially. Not too shabby. <laughs> $373.5 million was the worldwide box office in 95 where it would finish as the highest grossing film of 95 both domestically and worldwide it spent four of its first five weekends in theaters at number one the only weekend it wasn't at number one it was at number two in the box office and stayed in theaters for 37 weeks without inflation it would rank as the fourth highest grossing animated film of all time at that point aladdin the lion king and beauty and the beast were the top three and it would prove itself to be critically beloved as well no Shit. 8.3 IMDb rating on 780,000 ratings. Good for a tie of 66 on IMDb's top 250 movies ever list. Still carries a 100% certified Fresh Rotten Tomato rating on 81 critic reviews. Average critic score, Mike. You want to guess what it was? Oh, God. Uh, it's it's going to be in the nine-somethings. It's 8.99 out of 10. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> right? I, I think that might... I know we say this often a lot when we're reviewing these great movies. That might be the highest average score for a film, right? I can't remember thinking of something in the nines like that. Yeah, that's... Well, Apollo 11 was pretty high... That's a documentary. I mean, for just a feature-length film.
1: Yeah, This was a huge deal, though. Uh,
0: Absolutely. 92% audience score and over a million reviews there. I think it's over 1.1 million, actually. A lot of people getting to the internet to rate how they feel about this movie. All of this led to the films being nominated for three Oscars. Best score, which they actually had two best score categories back Mm -hmm. then. Uh, Best score, musical or comedy. Best original song for You got Fang (laughs) in Me. Original screenplay, which it lost to the usual suspects, so I'm not that upset about it. But a special Oscar was given to John Lasseter like we said for the development and inspired application of techniques that have made possible the first feature length computer animated film.
1: <sighs> <laughs> Some incredible specs uh, the plot premise reads Mike a cowboy dow- doll or doll mm-hmm. uh, a cowboy doll is profoundly threatened and jealous when a new spaceman figure supplants him as top toy in a boy's room. That sounds kind of intense for
0: a little kid movie in many So ways. that's, I know we're going to get into the highlights and stuff we like, but that's kind of one of the biggest takeaways for me is that how many adult themes yeah. were buried into this, like, hard, hard children's movie. Yeah, there's
1: resentment, (laughs) there's jealousy, and then, of course, they're at the edge of a knife, the whole movie. Exactly, It's it's just amazing. Uh, Mike, what were your expectations for the rewatch? Can you recall back to, harken back to your expectations as a kid? I remember this movie being a huge deal, like I mentioned. It was what everybody was talking about when I was 11 years old. We got a computer generated
0: film. Yeah, it was a big deal. It was a huge deal. As far as when I was a kid, we'll start there. Um, I don't remember seeing this I I know I'd seen it a billion times. I don't remember seeing it any one specific time, but like watching this now in 2019, there were certain lines Mm -hmm. that I like, I would hear on the screen and it was like a Vietnam flashback for me. Like I would just remember a time and place where I was. Now I'm older than you. So you were eight years old. Yes. Seven years old. Yeah, in nine, yeah, 95, yeah, eight years old That's there. Little, yeah. So, uh, but I remember like, I am Buzz Lightyear, Space Commander, like those types of things. I had toys that said that, those mm-hmm. lines, and I remember playing with those, and it was just the, the video recording from there, so... As far as expectations, now in 2019, I was expecting this movie to be like two hours. I didn't expect an 81-minute 80 movie. 81 minute just snap of the fingers. And it's not even 81. If you go from opening scene to first credit roll, right. 76 minutes, 77 minutes right on that line. So, makes
1: sense that they're not going to go over long for their first computer-generated picture.
0: Sure. But. Makes a lot of sense. But also, like thinking about it as a kid, this movie made such a big mark on me. Right. It must have been an epic because I remember like watching Titanic, you know, sure. and that's a three-hour movie. I remember watching that when I was 11 or 12 years old. And it's like, this one had to have been just as long. No, not at all. What about you? What do you remember from it? So I haven't rewatched
1: any of the Toy Stories in a few years, uh, maybe since Toy Story 3 came out. I can't
0: out. rewatch Toy Story 3. <laughs>
1: it's <laughs> intense. It's super <laughs> intense. We'll get there. But uh, I wasn't ready to be as comforted by the music, by the story as I was here. It, it really put me at ease. Yeah. And this, like I said at the beginning of the show, this was comfort food. It was good for the soul. And as a screenwriter, I'm going to get into a lot of... Uh, things that I just loved, and I can't, you know, learn from enough. And I think everybody uh, as a writer, as a storyteller, can uh, just learn so much from this movie. It is as tight a script as you're ever going to see. And think we're going to get into the non spoiler review here. We'll go a little bit faster than normal. Yeah. And stay tuned for the rules of storytelling in the spoilers. But, Mike, production values, I guess, cite the sound. I uh, want to talk about the animation a little bit. Now, this is the Pioneer, of course. Yeah. Did, did you think it looked awkward to you? I have, everything's a little shiny. Or are we dealing with toys that are supposed to be shiny and we're, they set the world to their capabilities?
0: So I did a lot of research prior to watching the film. Yeah. I did research to get my notes together and, and the, the Pixar stuff and all that. And... There was a quote from somebody, I don't remember, I don't think it was Lasseter, but somebody that worked on this that said that they were not happy with how it looked. They said it's their worst animated film ever. Obviously, it's their first one, but sure. they said there were some things that just looked so bizarre and awkward to them, and because the story was so strong, it didn't matter, and it did right. not matter because they wanted to focus on the story for, first and foremost. So I went in having read that first, so I was expecting to like see some glaring instances? No, no not no, at all. None of that. I, I saw like maybe two frames that I was like, oh, that looks a little weird. That's it. Right. I still think it holds up great. Absolutely. I mean,
1: the the humans are the least uh, well-drawn of the group, or well-realized, I would say, but even the baby is funny, and yes. you know, they have the same cartoony look to them, so it's not like it's not like we're trying we're going for realism there. You know, it it could be like more modern art right. to these humans. So I thought that was okay. But Mike, I did wanna say that when Andy is playing with these toys, is it just me or do the characters move around like the characters in Hereditary? Oh god. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I didn't, I, I, I didn't notice Her, that. Harken you back to
1: another <laughs> little mini series. We God, did? it doesn't have a treehouse. That's right at the beginning of the movie and it really just sets the tone for the type of, of fun that we're going to have. Yeah. The kids playing with those toys and it looks great and they, there's the sets within the set. We have his room but we have the little bank, we have all those things and then the way he plays with those toys what a great opening and I, I would agree with you. I think the animation really holds up and I'm going to talk about the design later on of these sets, uh, these settings, excuse me, because mm. they're not sets, but though they are inside the computer. But the this design here is special to make a gas station so scary, to make a pizza place so spectacular, to make a kid's room like the height of horror movie for children. Yeah. I just, I
0: think it's pretty incredible. I cannot disagree with anything. This was a special, and this was one of those movies you knew was special when you first saw it. Right. Yeah. And, and re-watching it, I mean, I rewatched it three
1: times, because 80 minutes. Yeah. Last two days, and it's just been bing, bang, boom, put it on, put it on again,
0: nice and easy. Take that, Avengers Endgame.
1: Right. And, <laughs> you know, just the Randy Newman songs are just comforting, and you, you realize, I didn't realize that he had a duet. In that movie? <laughs> like, when... I just... In my brain, it's just... It's only Randy Newman. It's but then know the guy going... Yeah, you got a friend
0: in me. That was also Randy Newman. <laughs> so it's great. Yeah, uh, the music, of course, is, is wonderful. Randy Newman. <laughs> it's it's so funny. Like, you see this the first time when you're a kid, and yeah. you're like, that's a catchy tune, and it stays with you. And then you get to an adult, and you learn about Randy Newman, how he was just everywhere in the 80s and 90s. And it's become like a parody unto himself. It didn't leave the piano. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's just something funny we to got me. got another little ditty <laughs> Turn on the record. (laughs) performances Mike who were you most like who brought you back to a child most in this movie
1: well Tim Allen I think gives the, the best performance in my opinion pound for pound because it might be manipulated by how they animated his face so I, I loved all of the little expressions. He's also got a lot to play. He's doing the shtick with the you know the drink and the tea. He's doing all of the shtick with the, the you know his early part, the part of his character
0: there where he's under kind of a bit of a delusion. And he was shticky in 1995, right? Like yes. this was like the meat of the home improvement. Like I think it might even been before home improvement started. And he's got a lot of punchlines too. Tom Hanks has probably got the most difficult. Role. I forgot how much Tom Hanks is just straight out yelling in this yelling? movie. For it, like an hour. <laughs> how
1: do you not come across as a total jerk? Yeah. How do you
0: stay likable and just
1: yell? It's I been mean, a
0: joke for a long time, but he really should run for president. Yeah, He would win 70% of the vote. And the, the way that character was written, they always struggled with making Woody likable. It's a total it yin and yang, too. Like the, When Woody is likable, Buzz is being kind of a... a delusional ass and vice versa and I again the themes throughout this wowed me and the fact that they were all fully encapsulated in 80 minutes blows me away and you mentioned the supporting cast
1: just so distinctive sounding (laughs) and their performances are ingenious and Don Rickles for as much a villainy as he acquires throughout the story he also you know drops all the jokes so it's so smart that they give you two sides of that character like he's a jerk on the one hand but he also is cracking wide every other chance he gets.
0: I wonder if that was so purposefully casted too for like the adults that were taking their kids because Mm -hmm. no adult is turning on Don Rickles. Right? Like, they all know he's the gr- grumbly Absolutely. curmudgeon that's just going to tear you down anyway. You got the guy
1: from Cheers, and you got right. uh, Ernest B. World, <laughs> and you got, uh, of course, Don Rickles. This is a movie that is made ju- as much for adults, yeah, with all the classic toys. God, it's so it, smart. As it is for the kids. It's so and, smart. And then you have kid characters who are. Thoroughly flushed out, who have a million miles of personality, like they showed Andy playing early on. I know I talked about how the toys have more personality, and they do, but you have very few scenes with Andy, and he is showing who his character is. And you have very few scenes with
0: Sid, and he's showing you who he is (laughs) in just terrible detail. I would say more, yeah, and I was surprised too on the rewatch to to rediscover that Sid has got a lot more screen time than Andy. Yeah. I, I didn't remember that. So the last thing here, let's go right to the
1: Oscar lens because we got a fun spoiler section coming. Mike, is this a better screenplay than The Usual Suspects? Is this a better score than anything else that could have been nominated? Is this a better song than, See, than yeah, I,
0: I, I was like offended that it didn't win original screenplay right. until I saw it was Usual Suspects. And I was like, okay, it's up against all, an all-timer. I
1: get why The right. Usual Suspects would win. Now, The Usual Suspects wins based on structure... In many ways. Scene to scene, I don't love the usual suspects. Like, the scenes, like, some of them are just... Awkwardly yeah, they're bad. wonky I, I they're absolutely wonky, agree. and you got Voldemort in there, and you got yep. a lot of different things. Oh, yeah. In
0: 2019, it doesn't hold up. Well. Yeah, it
1: doesn't <laughs> hold up in the retrospective <laughs> treatment. However, it, it wins on structure. Like you got yeah. twists and turns in that story, which are pretty phenomenal. This movie is just absolutely tight and efficient. Oh, my oh, God. So wonderful. efficient.
0: I counted four major storylines that all converge. And are all fully fleshed out and given complete character arcs it's yes. just a am- to do that on within an hour and 10 basically amazing so let's dance right yeah let's dance spoilers ahead this is a spoiler warning spoilers spoilers Alright, the spoiler section for our big Pixar rewatch, Episode 1. Toy Story 1, we figured no better time and place to kind of start this and leading into Toy Story 4, so this is the first episode of the MMO Pixar Deep Dive Rewatch covering Toy Story from Mike, Mike and Oscar from 1995. Mm -hmm. We're going to, like we said and we teased in the non-spoiler section, we're going over the 22 rules of storytelling. Very famous screenwriting uh, a list of rules and basically a bit of a gospel, a paradigm if you will for the screenwriters Mm -hmm. Uh, and the nerds that went through all those movie classes while I was Stupidly wasting away in law school. No, you were uh, <laughs> working on things that could actually make you money.
1: So you did okay. So
0: Mike wanted to say to concentrate on rule number one. Since this is the first episode, so rule number one: you admire a character for trying more than their successes. Michael, a, l- a little clunky, but I think it's very
1: deliberate in its in its usage there. So essentially, you have a character that is successful and you admire him for being successful but you also but you what you really admire in any character in a movie is that he goes beyond his own success so this character of woody cares about all these other toys in his room now he can just be a tyrant but he's not they put on little goofy uh you know Town hall meetings. Have, town hall <laughs> meetings where they have theme nights. Mm-hmm. where they he, he does all these things to keep them organized, to allay their fears, to ju- basically manage them not only as their leader but as their coach and he, psychologist. He, yeah, he's
0: basically the mayor of Toy Town.
1: He's the mayor, and I, I just love how he commands the army men to, to again, you know, just have all these toys, relax, and not worry about what's coming. And if there is something scary coming, a new toy that they got to deal with, now they'll know. And he just basically protects them like mm-hmm. uh, like his family, like his town. So you admire the character of Woody, despite being Andy's favorite toy. That's his success. I mean, this, he's the most successful toy in the group. And Lasseter and everybody have talked about that Toy Story. What drives these toys is the need to be played with, the need to be loved in that way. And the, all these toys are definitely thriving on the fact that they are played with by a human. So th- that kind of you know sets their worldview and the fact that Woody's. Played played. with the most, he still cares about all these other characters throughout the movie.
0: Remember a time when people in power didn't have to be assholes?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now you have Woody going through an arc in this movie, he gets jealous, he does wrong, he has to reconfigure out why uh, he does what he does, and he he turns into a hero after he does wrong, and that's a fascinating arc for a character, and it's a real arc in a kids movie that you wouldn't necessarily suspect, or you would think that I would just get shoved in your face. This is done in very subtle ways and very yeah. clever ways.
0: Yeah, again, the, the themes that went through all this, and I gave the the you could see the inspirations from other cinematic events, and it, obviously Indiana Jones is basically on the nose for this one, but right. the, the themes, the very adult centered themes that this hits on, and there are like so many of them. There's sure. a couple without question that it, it's amazing that they were able to keep the veil and the facade of a children's movie so grounded when they're dealing with. A very adult concept, and it's a, and it's a crazy sequence. I think that
1: what exemplifies what you just said the most is that with the misfit toys at Sid's room like that is a horror sequence, Mike where those toys come out of the ground you have Woody agreeing to break all of the rules of his world where the toys are not supposed to come to life in front of the kids which is like a meta crazy thing here so you got the serial killer in the making torturing all these toys now I don't know if this is going to make him more likely to become a serial killer (laughs) or less likely to become a serial killer but bottom line is Woody Again, you admire him because he cares beyond his own successes. He cares about all these misfit toys in Sid's house that he's going to scare Sid straight with his escape plan. He could just basically enlist the help of these, you know, well meaning toys that have been mutilated and abused all those years, and they probably would have helped him, but he does it to basically scare Sid straight into treating them right, and that's definitely a line at the end of all that when they do get away. So, again, rule number one, you admire a character for trying more than their successes, and that makes so much sense.
0: Yeah, I really love that, too. I I mean, to uh, write Woody in the way he is, and not only... When you're dealing with the misfit toys, Mm -hmm. you're writing them as like not lost and hopeless, and not the maniacal and not the craziness. They they know they're kind of desolate and destitute, but they're still willing to be so kind and work like, and help each other. You,
1: you talked about what was our heartbreak and our, what was our happiness yeah. in this movie. That's my heartbreak. Is I it? could not believe that these misfit toys tugged on my heartstrings so much, and I literally got emotional when I saw all those toys come out, when I saw how tortured and and abused they were, literally, and then they're still helping that those little toys and putting their heads back on? Oh, my God. And, man. like,
0: yeah, they're mutilated, and it, they're, they're highlighting their differences, and that's the whole point of the subtext here, but it's like, God damn you, Disney, for making that baby head still be so freaking cute on that yes. spider monster. and it, making that the half yo-yo with the legs thing, have a personality. It's so clever, so cleverly written too and of course it's going to tug at your emotions. I didn't expect that this was going to be the moment where I'll like... <gasps> <laughs> no! <laughs> the, the
1: little misfit toys come out. Somebody save the misfit toys. But uh, did did you have another heartbreak moment? Yeah,
0: like? I did and it was actually the worst scene I had too because I didn't like how, how was quickly it was done but again, uh-huh. I, I think I also was just mad at the characters. Um, when Woody... <laughs> (laughs) Throws the lights across when he's in Sid's room and he throws the lights across and Mr. Potato Head basically turns on him and is willing to just say like you hurt Buzz you you're just gonna hurt us and throws the lights away. I got so angry I'm like why are you turning your back on him? This guy's led you through everything. The look on Slinky Dog, but yeah, he had the the big arm. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Buzz's arm, and they did think he murdered Buzz out of sheer yeah. There is that, and then yeah, he had Buzz's arm. So that so that's one side of the coin, Mike.
0: What made us so happy, though? How about you start here? Oh, God, there was a lot. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) So what made me happy as an adult is very different from what made me happy, and it's something I've touched on a couple times already. The the major storylines here... Being all packed in and all being fully fleshed out and given their complete arcs and allowed to play out and culminate at the same time. Symmetry made you happy. Yeah. And it's like the A to B to C storytelling. Right. You know, there's a monster movie like you said. So what he wants to escape, he's immediately met with resistance in the form of Scud or Spike the Dog. Right. So he has a Shawshank-esque escape story now. <laughs> Buzz gives chase and is met with a commercial for his action figure. So now he has his own mini coming-of-age film within this. Like yes. everything was so Easily fleshed out. Like it's not easy. They made it look easier than it was, but it's so seamless and integrated within one another. That made me happy. Was this there's an 80-minute movie, Mm -hmm. and you have all of these stories culminated, fleshed out. There's art, and they're they're given time to play themselves out completely and satisfactorily while addressing the obstacles that would naturally come out, while addressing and writing themselves out of any kind of plot holes. It just it's like a picture-perfect
1: script. And it's fascinating, like you talk about the Buzz Lightyear arc where he's basically having a psychotic break <laughs> in the middle of this movie. He, the height of his problem happens at the beginning of their escape when they know they need to get the yeah. hell out of there. So to ratchet up one storyline's you know craziest moment and put it at the beginning of another storyline is just ingenious. Like you said, all these roads coming together. Uh, I totally agree there. That makes me happy too. Symmetry and writing prowess, <laughs> I, I would agree. A couple moments that made me happy. I think the hero moments really work. Again, they, they make you a little emotional. When Woody goes back for Buzz the few times that he... that, that or When Woody goes back for Buzz at the end of it, and he because he, he, at that point, he's done right by Buzz. He saved his life. Right. He's already gone back to for him and said, all right, I got to come back with you, or else I'm dead, whatever. But he goes back for Buzz that last time after he finally gets through... Uh, to andy's car he's been through that ordeal really you should just wave to him at that point <laughs>
0: figure it out pal but he goes back to him yeah and
1: pushes him under the fence with the rocket still
0: on i just thought that was a great hero moment and that goes right in line with the screenwriting rule that you talked about how what yeah. he could have just been okay with it I and mean, like look i tried my best guys because we just got through <laughs> the act through two
1: climax now and now we're in act three basically the chase yeah. to the car now we're friends Now, we're officially friends. Like, I need to go back for you because we are friends because we just got through that crap together. Now, let's chase down this car. And they do it in a a way that's somehow, Michael, filled with more jeopardy than what they just got through. The ordeal that we didn't think could be more dire, this torturer of medieval prowess, (laughs) this little kid, Sid, who's a nightmare beyond nightmares, this early serial killer who's going to blow them up with a rocket and now we have this car chase or this truck chase that is that much scarier because they could blow up in midair they could get run over by the car
0: they're being chased by that dog which is terrifying uh in its own right isn't it amazing how many action adventure scenes were fit into this story about toys coming to life right like there's an actually like a harrowing event a chase scene that breaks out they have to survive from a dog attack they have to survive from this Horror monster personified and Sid type uh, antagonist that they're dealing with. Yeah, and I
1: love how Buzz is the strong. He's the muscle guy, and Woody won't fight the dog. Woody just gets his foot grabbed mm-hmm. by the dog, but Buzz takes the dog's eyelids <laughs> and puts it right back in its face. I'm fighting this dog, and that's that's him basically joining his two personas. Like he thought he was the spaceman the yeah. whole movie, and and now he knows he's a toy. But bottom line is. I'm a badass toy. Still. Well,
0: he fa- and he, I mean the culmination of that is when when he fully accepts that he's falling with style the at the best end of it. Payoff, yeah. Right?
1: payoff, that that was my next moment here. What make could make me happier than that payoff to basically a entire movie's worth of their friendship and he uses a line early on that right. when they were at their you know their peak rivalry and basically he uses it to tip us off in one little catchphrase about what he's doing. And it's totally preposterous. Let's put it that way. It's probably my worst scene at the same time because it is physically impossible. No. And absolutely. No. I don't know a lot about he physics. He rips the
0: tape off. He's
1: fine. <laughs> I don't know a lot about physics. But after he fall, like he jumps in the air and he just falls straight down before, probably can't do that. <laughs> Probably can't do that. And hard, hard
0: disagree. (laughs) Hang glide. Hard disagree. (laughs) But I'm okay with
1: it because of that line. You explain away the obvious objection that we've always talked about with MCU movies. As long as you joke it away, as long as you got a clever payoff there. Younger me, you know, the 20 times I've seen this before the this moment, I don't have a problem with it. Now I'm an Oscar. What is a curmudgeon? Yeah, I'm a curmudgeon. (laughs) So I'm a little
0: different now. Anything else for you that made you so happy? I just remember like the childlike wonder of the whole concept of this and it, it, watching this just brought me right back to it and brought goosebumps on my arms of like i had some of those toys we all did right like sure. mr potato head the little tykes that the the microphone attached to the little speaker there that you like sing into when you're a little kid <laughs> like i had a little green army Man. i remember playing with those for hours at my grandparents house Definitely. growing up like The fact that you took all these real toys, I think they obviously created some for the movies to sell, but they took real existing toys that all of us played with growing up and gave them not only characterization, but characterization that we all might have related to them anyway. Like, of course, the army men are going to be Emery and very serious and go on these recon missions and all this. It was so clever and it was so childlike. I don't understand how they got that wrapped up. And just hitting the nail on the head so perfectly of bringing our what we all fantasized about as kids to the screen.
1: Yeah, it's such a payoff from our own expectations yeah. going into the movie and from our own childhoods which is incredible that's like archetypal storytelling in many ways because you're basically taking all these shared experiences yeah. and, and playing them out to the point where you you know your collective high brain and your imagination gets satisfied mm-hmm. we, we get what we never knew we always exactly. wanted which is hopefully what you get from this podcast <laughs> but most of all it's hopefully what you get from the movies so that's why we love to love this so much to finish our happy Happy moments, though, Mike. I want to talk about the epilogue. Yeah. We have Bo Peep kissing Woody. We have the face that Buzz gives him after that moment, after he comes <laughs> back with all the lipstick marks. And Buzz just, like, gives him a triple take. And it's so <laughs> funny. And it hit me so funny just rewatching it. You have the recon mission at Christmas morning. Love that. The moment that we get the Mrs. Potato headline, and then after Mrs. I got shaved. I got shaved. It still makes me laugh. And then, of course, we got the puppy. And of course, that's corny. But after the whole deal with the Scud dog,
0: yeah. You had to have something to, to end on. And there's only so much. Like there wasn't going to be a new toy that was going to intimidate them because they couldn't. Obviously, Disney didn't have the licensing rights, so you couldn't introduce a new character right there because everyone would have been left like, "What is this person?" So you had to have something that everyone can relate to. Yeah. What's more relatable than they just fought a dog throughout the entirety of the end of Act An two. evil dog. That was an right. evil dog. So yeah, I think that was that was a perfect way way to cap it. What Pixar pulled off in this, not only we, in any aspect. 90% of this film could have been told through the use of shadow and daylight and screen lighting, too. Yeah. Like the first exposition we have to Buzz Lightyear's box is when Andy holds it up and the shadow is casted up and grants the Incredible wall. Incredible shot. I, I, Iconic. How? How? Iconic. I don't understand how that's possible because it looks so real. But I loved everything about this movie, obviously.
1: To think about the settings and to describe those, yep. Mike Woody's POV, You have it's so smart from Act 1, 2, and 3. Act 1 you have safe Andy's room. Mm-hmm. I'm on top, but I care about the other characters. Then you get unsafe Andy's room. You kick off into Act 2 where basically they're on the run. You have the accident where Buzz is, you know, kicked out of the room and now, you know, you could just hide, but whatever. You you go after Buzz in that that instance. You have the gas station, you have the pizza delivery truck, you have Pizza Planet. Now, we're still not getting into the ultimate cave of the story, as we like to say, "Go fighting the dragon and mm-hmm. screenwriter lore imagery and all that, but we have increasingly scary places. The, the place with the cult-like follower aliens. The claw. <laughs> That's pretty scary. Like You could be stuck in there and just surrounded by all these cult-like follower aliens. And they just worship this claw. We're going to the cosmos. Or whatever they say in, in, in Sid's bag. He must course, go.
0: He was chosen. He the was claw was chosen. chosen him. <laughs> That's wonderful.
1: So Woody finally makes his way with Buzz to Sid's house. Now you have this late act two just... I mean this is in Pulp Fiction where you have the scariest moment in cinema at the end of uh, you know
0: going into act three the way they drew Sid's room when one of the first things you see on the wall is a bumper sticker that says I heart explosives yeah Kid, that killed me by the
1: way he's hilarious in how evil he is oh yeah this I never laughed as, as, as much at Sid as I do now because I've probably seen Dexter right I've seen, well, you know I've listened to the last podcast on the left so now Sid is hysterical in his, in his evilness I but, don't
0: believe that man has ever gone to medical but, school
1: but yeah you have them going through the ordeal with Sid and it's just terrifying and that's act 2 friendship complete and now act 3 now they're friends now they can team up now the adventure begins yeah the getaway yeah and and they're with a rapid, rocket strap to Buzz's back. Uh, it's a super scary chase. I mean, in terms of the momentum of that finale, they're on the road. They're facing uh, eternal damnation. It's a fate worse than death. Yeah. We've always talked about screenwriting dilemmas. Mm-hmm. They have to basically face a fate worse than death. They'll be alone in the middle of the street without any chance of survival, and here they are. It's just a great job putting those heroes
0: in jeopardy. And they put on a clinic. Less. You know, lest we forget, too, that all of this, the Pixar animation stuff aside, the story writing and how there was a concerted effort to put story first, even above technology, which is what they are known for. Right. This is relative unknowns at this point for screenwriting. Definitely. You know, I mean, they've done, you know, Pixar won their Oscar for the animated short. That was a lot of Lasseter's work in 86. But Joss Whedon had TV and parenthood. the Buffy movie. Yeah, yeah. he had Parenthood and he had
1: nothing really on his resume before, you know, uh, this film. And, and yeah, absolutely. The only guy that really had stuff was Ramph
0: right. with the
1: other Disney films. And he was an early screenplay doctor that, that helped them. But it was fascinating to see all of them read Robert McKee's story that was big that came out that, that book sure. came out at that time. And then they said, All right, we worship this screenwriting so principle. Smart. We're gonna follow that to the nth degree. And then you had, of course, the story machine that was Disney. It's just really a perfect storm of creativity and ingeniousness. Obviously they couldn't waste any shots either. So they knew they needed economy because you can't have deleted scenes really in a film like this Because it's so costly And taking
0: the meta view Like The story Of Pixar And of the screenwriting Of this movie Is so inspirational In and of itself Because right. you uh, if it wasn't true it would be too cokey for a movie because this is a, a company that was basically on its last ends and Disney could have pulled the plug right exactly then. and and it had and Disney pulled the plug that would have been it because Jobs would have sold the company like he was right. looking to do anyway so these guys would have kind of been men without country and they just kept pushing forward and kept pushing the rock up the hill Definitely. and they finally found paradise and it, it Unbelievable story, both within the movie and on the outset in the meta-universe. So where does it fit in the Pixar universe? Uh, Essentially, of course, it kind of sets the tone. Could we have a better opening? I mean, we get rounded characters. The only reason I don't give this grade, uh, this movie, a higher grade is because I know what's coming in this franchise, right. and I know I like them more. <laughs>
1: right. Uh, we get fun throughout, but we, Mike, we also get characters that are just as much for kids as adults. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is a real tone setter in many ways. Characters
0: and characterization, yeah, and they're
1: not afraid to put these characters in the most hellacious scenarios where they have so much jeopardy that a kid should be screaming aloud in the theater. It, it should be too much for a little kid. I mean, like I said, Buzz has a psychotic break yeah. in the middle of this Full-fledged. <laughs> it, it, hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. And this, yeah, they somehow make it funny, but it's also like, oh my God, that's kind of disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some serious neuroses going on here. So... You know they put old style toys again for the parents and adults randy newman of course catnip to old white people it just made
0: so much sense just as a ring re- means of recapping where we are versus where we're going this obviously came out november of 95. it was in the theaters like i said in the specs for like a almost a year 37 right. weeks so pixar really got its money's worth obviously literally got its money's worth but also kind of introduced themselves as a force to be reckoned with mm-hmm. so this was Uh, November of 95, Pixar wouldn't have another movie until November of 98. Right. So, again, the technology probably prohibited them from doing much in a year span or so. Uh, They wouldn't have their, you know, one movie a year after the previous one until Toy Story 2, which was in 99. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this set the stage, but it kind of left a little bit of a, you know... What? which is always a good thing we, they, we made us wait a long time before they got back on the horse and put out their next movie which was a bug's life
1: you had to savor these movies and, absolutely but you had to watch them 37 times a piece <laughs> That's why we loved them so much. And I had younger brothers, and we would just watch them like crazy.
0: So, next up for us, we're not gonna necessarily go in chronological order. And we if you can. listen to our Disney animated top five episode, we explained that anyway. We kind of wanted to highlight the franchises right. that Pixar did first and foremost before going back through and getting the random ones, such as A Bug's Life, such as Brave, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, what we're going to do next, in terms of our next episode two for the Pixar rewatches, we're gonna cover the monster movies. So Monsters Inc., Monsters You. If you go back and look through the annals of Pixar. Pixar monsters and came out relatively early. It was only the fourth Pixar movie released, sure. but it did did happen, this one came out in 95, Toy Story 1, Masters Inc. wasn't until 2001. Sure. So, six years for them to do four films. Very unlike what we get these days with the cinematic universes where Marvel. And it's also important to note that this is kind of like the first seeds of a cinematic universe, oh, too, yeah. being introduced. And oh, yeah. Very cool. We're going to touch on that as we get along, too. Talk about branding, by the way. <laughs> Disney's not bad at that. So, that's where, where we are headed next with this series. Um, we hope that you got your money's worth out of the first part of this we're going to be covering every Pixar movie all 20 films is it 21 20 films 21 is Toy Story 4 correct 20 films up until Toy Story 4's release in June of this year so we're only about three months away from that but also we have other stuff in the pipeline obviously we have more MMO interviews coming to you we have other franchise deep dives that are going to be kicked off at some point in the near future, somewhat simultaneously, and then we're gonna keep covering new movies
1: like Pet Cemetery, like uh, Hellboy. That we've done uh, retrospectives on their originals. They're being remade now. Bottom line is, you know, we're we're year-round movie pod. We got a weekly variety show, and now we have another seasonal rewatch. How do you like that uh, wordplay? I like that a lot. We have a seasonal rewatch, like we did last year with the MCU, like we did the last. Fall with uh, the Halloween franchise last summer with Mission Impossibles. Yep. Mike, we just we do one per season, kind of like how the MCU does a movie per season. Unlike how <laughs> Pixar does a movie every four years. But bottom line is, we love to do this. This is right in our wheelhouse. It's different too because fun.
0: last year was was more big franchises mm-hmm. this year the big franchises have academy ties sure so we are going to be concentrating on the oscar lens all throughout all these whether you're talking about uh this one the pixar rewatch any kind of tarantino watch we do all of those should hear their names come Oscar season anyway. So this Definitely. is going to be a big year. Yeah, it's a
1: setup to the best animated feature category which was one of the most fun things to cover throughout last award season yeah. with Spider-Man with your tinfoil hat with of course the I'm still Incredibles still waiting
0: for them to correct the record there. <laughs> the
1: Incredibles too. That was a lot of fun and we did, we, we got, we did very well with those episodes. So obviously you guys like that and please tell your friends about our show. We're, we're growing. We've been ever growing for a while. But of course, you know, word of mouth is probably the best way to help us. If you want to help us on social media or with uh, iTunes, certainly leave us a review. Leave us that five stars. That those iTunes
0: reviews go such a long way. And for those of you who have reviewed, yeah. we can't thank you enough. If you could spread the word, honestly, if you enjoy this, turn your friends on to any kind of iTunes reviews that we can get. We really do appreciate it. Helps
1: it helps us grow organically in the sense that we just get out there to more people on the most popular podcast app there is. Yeah. So that really helps us. But bottom line, thank you. Thank you for all the, the, the growth. Thank you for all the information. Uh, the Interaction, the audience interaction that we feature on our Monday shows. We're having a blast, and this was necessary, Mike, because we needed a great movie after a couple of lousy movies <laughs> in the last few weeks. We had a couple of retrospectives yeah. that we thought would have been better. Yeah. Well, hopefully the remakes will be. The remakes will <laughs> be That's why we before. went over them. But, uh, but yeah,
0: great. if you guys can reach out to us and any questions, comments, concerns, anything you want to hear about the Pixar universe or any other rewatches, remakes, anything we're doing towards the Oscars season coming up for. 2019 reach out to us we are mike mike and oscar on facebook mike mike and oscar on instagram mm and oscar on twitter mike mike and oscar.com at gmail.com and on reddit we are available everywhere you do hear podcasts tune in stitcher itunes soundcloud spotify google play etc etc we usually end these episodes with a words of wisdom brought to you by also mike so go ahead Mike. so
1: the preface is that rule number one of the 22 rules of storytelling according to pixar you admire a character for trying more than their successes i think that's a a words of wisdom for life never mind you know for for storytelling but bottom line is if you want to study screenwriting study toy story one yeah for real wow
0: that might be the best script i think i've ever seen just put out on on film guys when reality sucks watch a freaking pixar movie you'll cheer up (laughs) (laughs) but you can also uh, watch movies with us and we will check you next time see ya. you got a friend in me